Good evening, wherever you are, and thank you for joining the Just Like the Movies podcast. This is our 38th special episode. We're getting back on the horse to talk about Unforgiven. We hope everybody had a great Mother's Day, um, whether you're celebrating your mother or the mother of your children or the handful of actual mothers who actually listen to our humble program. We hope you had a great day. I don't know about you, Johnny, but this, for some reason, the two weeks between Reservoir Dogs and this episode have just been dragging. I don't know what it is, but maybe I was just really eager to get back into it. I'm not sure. So why don't you tell everybody how you're doing, man? Good. Yeah. Mother's Day was a success. Um, also, we didn't give a shout out to the mother uh, that Danzig was talking to in that <laughs> song we like so much. So happy Mother's Day to that mother. Um, Gotta love yeah, a good everything... song about Munchausen by proxy. That's for sure. Yes. Mm. Uh, so the deal is things are pretty good. I, I kind of agree. It does feel like it was a, a long time now that you mentioned it between this and Reservoir Dogs. And we didn't take like an extra week or anything. So who the hell knows? But um, it's funny because you and I were also talking about how like the year's flying by. So just this two weeks was like, all right, we'll slow it down for you maybe. Who knows? Yeah, the weather's starting to pick back up around here. I don't know about up your way. But uh, yeah, start- just fine. Finally starting to get nicer and all that stuff. Just mowed the lawn today uh, <laughs> after, after work and did some weed whacking, classic uh, dad stuff. But um, yeah, man. So Unforgiven, huh? 1992, 30 years later. Uh, I, I would have to say, barring a cable watch on like USA or something in like the early 2000s or whatever, this I, I'd have to chalk this up as my first legitimate sit down and watch Unforgiven. Wow. Okay. So I, I was really because I remember at the end of our last when I, we were talking about it at the end of the last show, and I know where I'm at with the movie. And then you were like, I haven't really, I don't really know that one that well. So I'm I'm curious to get your your thoughts first before I go off on my little uh, tirades. Well, what I felt and what I've known, <laughs> it, it never shined in what I've shown. So when I think about it, it's never free. It's certainly never me. So I dubbed the Unforgiven. Okay. Metallica. Layman. <laughs> um, I, no, it was really, 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 really good movie. Obviously, I know it won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, several others, um, which I, I didn't, I don't think I realized. Uh, How critically acclaimed it was. Right. I'm, a, I, I'm afraid I, I, it did not win Best Actor, though. And one best director. Oh, it didn't. Best, yeah, this, uh, he lost to uh, Hua. Oh, Pacino? When yeah. he, he finally got his? Yeah, the, the, Pacino's makeup Oscar robbed Clint Eastwood of the best actor Oscar. And Malcolm and uh, Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. I think both of those were more deserving best actor nominees for that year, even though... Um, sure, sure. And all the th- that's funny, because as I was watching it, I was watching it under the false... Uh, information that I thought Clint Eastwood had won and I was like well Gene Hackman won but I feel like Gene Hackman outperformed Clint Eastwood in this movie um, which is not to say I mean if, if you're outperformed by Gene Hackman that's that's no smack in the face you know Gene Hackman's a goddamn legend um, but then you have you know Morgan Freeman you know kind of like flying under the radar in this movie a bit uh, a mid mid 50s Morgan Freeman um, and a lot, a lot of great cast, Richard Harris, you know, uh, a great cast in this one that we'll get into, but I gotta say, I really did enjoy the movie a lot. Um, and oh, it's good. The, the first thing that stood out to me was I do remember when this came out, I remember like, I always remember movie previews from when I was a kid, 
Yeah, you do. Um, you do have a head for that. Yeah, and and this is before you know people even like called them trailers. I remember they they were called coming attractions or whatever. And because my dad would always watch old Clint Eastwood westerns, he would always be on TV. Good, Bad, and the Ugly was probably his favorite. I think Fistful of Dollars. I don't know, but when you're a kid, like at least with me, I couldn't understand like, oh, that movie came out 25 years ago. I was just like, oh, there's this movie, and it must have. It must be out now. So then when I saw like the preview for this and saw like an older Clint Eastwood, I thought then I was like, dude, that guy got old, man. <laughs> and now he's still alive at like 91 years old. Yeah. Uh, so he was so, 61 uh, during the production of this. I mean, it's... yeah. So a 61 year old Clint Eastwood definitely comes across a lot younger than the Clint Eastwood that we know now at 91 who's still doing movies somehow so um good for him you know what what a run what a legend uh you don't like you you, you just don't they just don't make clint eastwoods anymore that's that's basically what they it comes certainly down to. do not they certainly yeah. do not but uh amazing job by him uh just you know putting putting this whole thing together and like we always say you and i never talk about these things uh before we get on but like the one brief thing that you brought up uh to a great point in in terms of the pattern of clint eastwood and his movies especially once he directs is that it's no nonsense uh and they just get things done and this movie like finished ahead of schedule which is like as far as i understand it pretty rare for any big movie um so and they and they filmed you know they filmed it in canada and uh, they, you know, they didn't have much problems with weather. And as a matter of fact, they had to like manufacture rain and that sort of thing. But um, I really, really liked the movie. It, it was very, in my opinion, like streamlined. It, it, uh, it had a lot of character development. But in terms of the story, it was very to the point. And that's, I guess, that's typical for a western. Um, but I, I, I felt, I don't know. It was just a smooth watch, and, and I, I, you know, I was rooting for. I was rooting for them the whole time, though at the same time, I am a big Gene Hackman fan, and I kind of was rooting for him a little bit too, even though I shouldn't have been. Um, so, I don't know. And I miss Gene Hackman, man. He retired like a while ago. I know he's like older than Clint Eastwood. He might be like 92. They're about the same like age. I think they're a couple yeah. months apart. But when you see like, you know, Gene Hackman and Clint Eastwood both still having their fastball in the early 90s, I think that's something that maybe a lot of people took for granted at the time because they probably thought, oh, they're older actors. And it's like, little did we know, those guys were still bringing it pretty oh, good. Oh, I mean, yeah, Clint Eastwood, for all intents and purposes, was just getting started, especially. I mean, he'd been as, he'd been directing movies for, I think, decades at this point. But, I mean, this was when he really... like Clint Eastwood had this quote where he thought he would never win an Oscar. And he said it was because... He was he was not Jewish. He said it was because he made too much money and because he quote unquote didn't give a fuck, and then ended up you know winning almost the almost the clean sweep for this movie, best picture, best director. He didn't win best actor, unfortunately, but um, stiff competition that year. Uh, oh yeah, craziness. But uh, yeah, this movie is like for me. I kind of came to it because when I was a kid, I started watching spaghetti westerns like. Um, and this movie came out, I definitely saw it on home video. I remember watching it. It, it was probably a couple years before it's theatrical run, or after it's theatrical run. I was, I was watching it, but I remember I, I watched it often and I always really enjoyed it. And I didn't even, but it wasn't, you know, I was like 12 years old, 13 years old. So I didn't really have the whole 
critical eye about what it represented about even though this isn't what they set out to do when they made the movie i mean it, 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 this movie basically is kind of the deconstruction of the western like you mentioned that for your personal your personal viewing experience like you like gene hackman so much even though i mean it sucks that welcome to mooseport just took him clean out of acting like <laughs> did you see that movie <laughs> I know the movie you're talking about. I've seen parts of it, but he's like running for office against somebody, right? Against Ray Romano, yeah. It's yeah. In some town yeah. in Alaska, and apparently it just made him never want to act again, which is just... <laughs> I, 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 admit, I admire the uh, when somebody like takes a hard stance and sticks to it, though. So I don't... Sure. I, it, but, but anyway, but back to... But this isn't some half-assed fucking post- Everybody loves Raymond podcast. We're talking about Unforgiven, which is which is you know probably one of the greatest westerns ever made. Um, yeah, but uh, I didn't really have you know I, I'm watching the movie. And I was just enjoying kind of the speed you of know, the the spectacle of it and the violence and the you know I didn't really wrap my head around all the kind of complicated themes with it and not not overly complicated, but in terms of you know you watch movies like the ones you mentioned, Fistful of Dollars, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. It's there's very clear roles. And one of the things about this movie that's pretty obvious is that the the roles aren't so clear. The lawman isn't isn't so scrupulous. He has his own kind of uh, faults and kind of agenda. Um, the the big bad killer who might have been a retired version of the man with no name, uh, you know he he doesn't really relish his past. And in fact. One of the things that you might think is so interesting, because he was one of the greatest to ever do it, he was like the the Mickey Mantle of killing. He was just drunk all the time, <laughs> just doing things <laughs> at, at the highest possible level and being probably drunk or hungover almost the entire time. <laughs> and one of the and the best ever. Yeah, Hopefully, like yeah. you know, Mickey Mantle's like just. Can you imagine like somebody's grandma just having a story about like blowing Mickey Mantle under the bleachers, like between games of a double header, like, <laughs> and he just doesn't remember any of it. <laughs> I can believe that actually. Um, Thomas yeah, Jane Mickey was fantastic as him in uh, sixty. He was, he was great, and and uh, Barry Pepper was a great Roger Maris. Um, but yeah, Mantle would have been like 90 now so there's someone still around right now that had their mouth on mickey mantle's cock <laughs> somebody's grandma happy mother's somebody's... day everybody but um <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well you God. mentioned the um yeah the the workman-like attitude of the you know like clint eastwood movies like like some of the, the things that are most fun to talk about kind of behind the scenes for me anyway i mean i don't know how our listeners feel about it but i know it's interesting to look at some of the oh this movie could have been this or this person could have you know been in this part or there was this behind the scenes drama so they had to make these adjustments on the fly and ended up with this great movie anyway i mean this yeah. movie was like that's that's Clint Eastwood's rep reputation is that everything just kind of runs like a swiss watch and he's not you know i watched a little behind the scenes featurette it wasn't very long but um all the actors were, were giving this glowing praise, talking about how even as much of an icon as Clint Eastwood it was, even at this time, before like all the you know Oscar wins and, and all that stuff, um, he really worked without ego, and he was very collaborative because he had been an a working actor for almost 40 years before he made this movie. 
So, I mean, like, all that served him very well. And the other thing is that his ability to, um, you know, spot... Like, they say that the one of the things that make a great leader is having great people around you and keeping them around you. And mm-hmm. one of the Oscars went to Joel Cox, who was his editor for almost a decade when he made this movie. The guy who built the town of Big Whiskey had been working with him for... 40 years or something like that he built the whole town in in canada as you mentioned in 32 days you know the shoot came in four days under schedule like the whole thing kind of and there probably wasn't a lot of alternate casting drama because once clint eastwood got involved i mean he's basically like okay i want this person for this part i want this person for this part and he kind of had the clout to i think morgan freeman actually approached him to play ned logan gene hackman had turned the the project down in the past because the, really the only the the script was old. The script had been around a long time. I don't know if you read this or not. Yeah, the, the Eastwood had it for a while and he was sitting on it. And I heard a rumor that he was part of the reason why he was waiting is because he wasn't old enough to play it. Yeah, uh, I don't know that that's true. Uh, it's a nice story, but that seems unrealistic for Hollywood. But I guess he had the script for a very long time. Yeah, I don't want I don't want to use the word apocryphal, but I want to use kind of the word fanciful. Like it's you know maybe because he said he gave that story. Like I've heard that story. That was the one I always heard too. But then like just reading around, he said he wanted to kind of do other things before he got to this one. And uh, the the woman who got the script to him was actually a chick he was having sex with like a story analyst who worked at uh, one of the studios and she got the, it was, the script was written by uh, the same dude who wrote uh, Blade Runner. Right. And yep. uh, he, he got his hands on this, but before that uh, Francis Ford Coppola was trying to option it with John Malkovich. As oh, with disaster. Oh my God. <laughs> well, he said the same thing. He yeah. said it would have been awful, but it's, it, <laughs> it all worked out kind of the way it should have, because the movie, even though, as I said before, they said that they they weren't setting out to make an anti-violence kind of deconstructionist movie, but that's kind of what they ended up making. And then, the, of course, you've got the face of the spaghetti western, except he's older and more craggy, and it's that's it's crazy. That was that was one of the more interesting parts of the movie to me was seeing like you know like the kid was like a, a phony baloney we find out at the end like the shooting the guy in the outhouse was his first kill after all that blabbering he did about being such a, a marksman and, and a killer um and then you have ned who you know does shoot davy bunting and he's like i i this isn't me anymore i can't do this anymore i gotta go and it's just like you, all of a sudden you got this like this trio and really all it comes down to is william money being the only one who still has it in him to to get the job done even though it's nothing out of passion or necessarily doing the right thing it's out of desperation because of his ranch and then wanting to take care of his kids mm-hmm. um, I mean he is atoning for how he was back in the day and there's a lot of that you know my wife made me a better man sort of thing and that endears me to the character so that was a good choice there otherwise it's a very you know wooden unaccessible uh just stock character so them peppering that stuff in i thought was good uh because it also shows he's kind of like you know a regretful guy and you know you and i aren't old so to speak right but <laughs> you see a guy in his 60s like looking back saying like man i kind of regret like everything i did and that's like that's tra- that's tragic man because then you're just like you feel like your whole life was a waste so here he is trying to you know make right so to speak but for selfish reasons um and when i say selfish i mean it's you know 
to to get the money to take care of his ranch to take care of his kids. So it's not just like, oh, I'm going to take this treasure and ride off into the sunset. He does it because he needs to do it. He, it's desperation hour for this guy to come out of retirement and help these hookers. So um, I, I I like all that aspect of it, but the fact that he was really the only one still ready and prepared to do the job um, is very Clint Eastwood to me, and I like that uh, twist there on that. Yeah, and it's um. You know, one of the things, you know, I use the word like like deconstruction, demythologizing, like deep, like not glorifying violence. I mean, that this, I mean, even not even just the violence itself, like not to, you know, get into get in the weeds a little bit, but technically Ned Logan didn't shoot Davey Bunting. He shot his horse and then he could, he couldn't shoot him. Right. Right. And right, then right. Will Clint Eastwood's character had to take the rifle from him and shoot him. And like, I just like it was little touches like that how Clint Eastwood was rusty on his horse and he wasn't a crack shot at the beginning of the movie and and uh, not even so much at the end but at the end I mean it was like it, there was this weird symmetry when little Bill was talking about what makes somebody good in a gunfight and that's exactly what he did it was he was just picking picking like he just wasn't panicking like everyone else was and he made himself right. small so it kind yeah. of you know, just it, it, it's like all it's it's this weird symmetry with you know little Bill having all his knowledge about being a lawman because <clears throat> I think we talked about this when we did the Tombstone podcast because it's kind of a recurring theme with westerns is that you know it's easy to like the way Hollywood TV shows movies especially back then portrayed you know is very white hat black hat and in real life yeah. I mean it's just they're just bad men serving different interests. Like, right. right. So, yeah. like, little Bill wasn't what you would call a great guy. He was just more oriented towards control, which you could kind of interpret as, well, does he want to control the town for his own ends? And then that's that's a weird thing, too, because he, his character was almost, like, if his character had lived, it was almost like his character in Quick and the Dead was, like, an outlaw version of him. Like, mm -hmm. he's just controlling a town and extorting everybody because he's the toughest guy around but uh you you meant you you mentioned his performance and you said it, it was the standout of the movie for you so why, oh, don't, yeah. why don't you talk about that a little bit for us you know just you know i'm a big fan of uh jaws and um you know part of my you know bucket list so to speak from a movie perspective is learning front to back uh quince monologue about the uss indianapolis and you know that scene where he's got uh richard harris uh english bob in the cell he's about to ship him off he he's he they fucked him up and he's talking to bochamp who goes from being uh a, in a sense a false biographer for english bob to being his biographer and he's like let me tell you how the story really went down and that whole scene mm. Is just one of the best performances I've ever seen. So you're, it's so you're just comparing the two stories, right? You're comparing the Robert Shaw monologue to the Gene Hackman story. In a sense, yes. I, I was it, I thought you thought that like Gene Hackman was Quint or something. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, Ro I, I'm Robert, with you now. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, Ro Robert Shaw is certainly his own man, but. Um, yeah, that that whole scene, you know, it is long. It, I mean, it's much longer than uh, Shaw's uh, monologue, which is one of the most famous of all time. But I think this, you know, maybe this is what netted him the Oscar because um, it's it's certainly, you know, if it was a play, it'd be him on the center of the stage with a spotlight on him, just r rifling off these lines and 
and the nuance to his performance because it involves you know drawing his gun it involves uh subtleties and 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 speaking about other people but speaking about his own experiences and it, it really doesn't feel like it's someone reading dialogue it does feel like a real person in that time in 1880 telling these stories and educating this guy at the same time on you know how things went down or how you need to be in order to achieve this or to still stay alive or you know and that scene in my opinion was my favorite scene in the movie because it just pulled me in uh from the because sometimes a monologue get you know y your eyes start getting a little heavy if the scene gets too long and it's darkly darkly lit and this movie is very dark in a lot of ways and how it was shot but for some reason that scene really pulled me in and it's the thing that stands out to me the most which is ironic because it's a very action-filled movie you would think the gunfire and some of those scenes are the ones that stand out the most but it was this scene with um uh, little bill daggett gene hackman talking to bochamp and kind of saying like no you you've had it wrong this is this is the deal and this is how you got to be to to do what i do and uh i i i it was amazing because i've always been a gene hackman fan so i'm a little embarrassed that i'm so late to really giving this movie my full attention but i'm glad i did you know um and uh it, it's one of his better better performances and i've seen movies all up and down his career you know the conversation all the way through you know uh, Superman and uh, even stuff he did in the 2000s like uh, the replacements and like uh, heartbreakers he was absolutely hilarious in but uh, <laughs> this this is prime time Gene Hackman just absolutely nailing it yeah and, I mean uh, it, it's a powerhouse scene because he goes from it yeah. shows how multifaceted the character is like he he puts up this front like he's a like a friendly personable guy but then he definitely likes exercising power over people. Like when oh. he when he gives he gives the guy the loaded gun because he knows he's not going to do shit with it. Like he just knows, and uh -huh. and then like when when English Bob doesn't take it, it's like is he scared or did he think that it might have been a bluff? I always interpreted that he thought it was a bluff because when he actually emptied it and he kind of sighs, like it looks. That's the, the best part, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, because that that's that's. Little Bill showing him like, yeah, I gave you a loaded gun, <laughs> and you and you were and you were right not to take it because I would have right. killed you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. Yeah, that's a, um, that, that's a great scene. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, there's so much more going on with it, like with the you know the the Beauchamp character like being such an opportunist and realizing that the guy he's following around is full of shit and this guy's better stories. And there definitely is something to that. Like that is really enjoyable when you. You know, like, that character had these romantic notions about what the West was. And Little Bill very quickly dispelled him of all those notions and, like, correcting all the little things about his story. And um, there's that funny little character uh, beat where he, it looks like, or maybe he did it. I, I never, maybe you could, you could kind of clear this up for me. But when he reads the title of the book and he goes, The Duck of Death. And it's like, it could just be that he's, you know, not so literate because that was a common thing back then but but then later on he goes and he keeps correcting him, but he says uh the duke and he goes duck i says and they're like because <laughs> he right because he knows he's full of shit a lot of big it, dick talk in this movie too like oh uh, yeah two gun yeah. Cor corky and then <laughs> and then uh quick mike <laughs> one of the perpetrators got the impetus of it was him getting his tiny dick laughed at so a little bit of dick talk in this one yeah, how how'd you feel about that? <laughs> Fine. <I don't> <laughs> <laughs> no um, issue. I, I, I don't. 
no no issue no but the, the, yeah that that scene it, like if it's one of those situations where i'm like i want to convince somebody they should watch unforgiven that's the scene i show them uh no question I gave this a lot of thought because, you know, the mo- like you said, the movie's action-oriented, but some of the best stuff is just the way they talk and some of the, like, the, the, the kind of the discussions that come up and things like that. Uh, for me, even watching this as an older person, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know what that has to do with anything, but I guess just you'd appreciate different things. Because I remember when I was a kid, I thought, my, I think my favorite scene was just where Gene Hackman beats the shit out of Richard Harris in the street. And then, like, later on, hands of his gun back and the barrel's bent because he told him to be careful with it. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think my favorite scene is just, you know, this movie, we talked about some of the things like how, you know, there's this expression one of my friends likes to use, my friend in the lumber business. He says, empty cans rattle the most. And it's where people who shoot their mouth off about how tough they are or how big their dick is, or, like, how many chicks they bang. Those guys are always lying. Like, all of them. Like, they're, it's always the people who are actually doing those things that are just, they just do them. They don't need to talk about them. And so when you mentioned the kid, uh, you know, this was that, yeah. this was James Wolvett's debut performance as the Schofield kid. In, the, in an earlier draft of the script, he ends up actually drowning himself because he's so guilty about killing a person. Um, but in any event, you have... You have all these conflicting things where the nature of reputation and celebrity at that time, and you know, you have a like a, a bad guy pretending to be a lawman. You have a you have a, a hall of fame just bandit trying to live a better life. You have all these people trying to do different things, and then that all comes apart when he finds out Ned's dead, and he you know he it set it up in the movie how he hadn't. A lot of a lot of his violence and propensity for violence is, was alcohol fueled. So Ned's the, dead, baby. <laughs> and you know, it was his wife who cured him of his drinking and his wickedness. And then he finds out Ned's dead, and he can't believe it. He his his emotions aren't out of control, but for for the baseline we've been set up with for the William Money character, he's in disbelief. He's like, "What do you mean he's dead?" And then, the, then she tells him the story, and he just takes the bottle, and he starts drinking. And she starts telling the story about who he really is, because that kid kind of had an idea that he was a he was a desperado, but no idea the depth of it. And then right. he's just sitting there taking long pulls off a bottle of whiskey while this woman's talking about all the shit he did in his past. And then the guy who's basically... His only friend at this point, as he says, like a, like a minute later in the scene, is starting to become scared of him. And I think you take all that in total, that's probably my favorite scene of the movie. Because the culmination of him fully returning to his past glory. Oh, or in glory in terms of being a, a badass. Not in terms of, you know, he's being a bad guy, but kind of right. an enviable tough guy and it's all and he's just sitting there taking these long slow drinks and he's just you can see he's just getting angrier and angrier and then all of a sudden this guy that he's been riding with for all this time is afraid now he's just gonna kill him because he wasn't aware of the full extent of what he was about before right. like before when he was a younger man so I think if you take all that into consideration, I think that's probably my favorite scene just because of it's the culmination of everything. It's kind of like the 
it's like the the pre climax of the movie. Like the, that's that's when he decides to ride back into town, and then he hits one of my favorite lines, where you know Gene Hackman calls him a cowardly son of a bitch, and he goes, "Well, he should have armed himself if he's going to decorate his saloon with my friend." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie has a ton of fucking great lines in it but that was like that was probably one of my favorites just because oh um, yeah yeah that, that like the context of it but yeah that was probably my favorite scene of the movie like at watching it this time for sure it's yeah it it's uh that's definitely a good scene there's, there's something about i don't know if it's like relatable there but there's something like you draw like people like you at least me anyway, I draw myself like to those characters that not that they necessarily like feel bad about themselves, but it's just like the, the, the reflective character, like looking back and, you know, like I was saying before about, you know, his, his motives and sort of like writing wrongs and maybe just like, you know, cause the old Western motifs are all about like, you know, setting things right before you you know, the sunsets on your life and stuff like that. And, you know, redemption arcs and, and all those sorts of things in these Westerns for these, you know, anti-hero gunslinger types. And all those motifs are sprinkled in here with its own unique, you know, twist to them. But, uh, the, yeah, the, I guess, and also just like that, like past his prime sort of guy. And you know, I, I do that with sports sometimes where there may be a player I don't like very much, but and then for some reason when they get older and they, they you know, they, they don't, they, they don't have it as much anymore you start like rooting for him a little because you, you still want to see that greatness. That's kind of how I see like a sixties uh, in terms of age, Clint Eastwood uh, in a Western uh, and his characters, of course. But um, th- yeah, that, so that is a, a really, really good scene. Now, one thing I want to get your take on, which I couldn't tell if it was just a bad game of telephone, so to speak, and like passing messages along at a time where, you know, there's no technology to, to properly do such like we're doing now, thanks to Google Hangout, apparently. <laughs> but or th- it was something to like bait people or what. But Delilah's injuries, you know, thereafter didn't seem as bad as they had been described in the chain of uh, how the message got end up getting to, to Will Money because he had heard they cut her eye out and you know they 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 cut her breasts off and they did all this and then you see her and i don't know if it's like hollywood and 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 clint eastwood like not caring about the details on on makeup and stuff but looks like she got into a fight with a cat (laughs) well she definitely got you know cut up but uh yeah that that was one of the fun like i thought that was one of the darkly funny parts of the movie was you know like it it fits in with that whole theme of reputation (laughs) like yeah a girl got her face cut up over nothing and then but then this these whores put out this bounty and then the story just gets bigger and bigger it's like you know it's it's the west and it's uh, it was like the you know the tail end of the west but you know you've what would the west be without tall tales right yeah that's a good point and it's funny because she's like you know surely you wouldn't want a free one with me because i'm hideous (laughs) and she has like three scratches on her face (laughs) And, dude, it, how funny is it that they got Anna Thompson for that part, who was just the go-to for damaged easy chicks in the. In That's the, the first thing I thought of, of was Darla. Yeah, Darla, yeah. and yeah. she played the same kind of part in Bad Boys. Like she was a, she was like a secretary or something like that was helping the criminals because like one of them was her boyfriend. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah and it's, it's funny. We're 38 movies in, and we've done two Anna Thompson movies. <laughs> Go Sorry. figure. But Sorry, yeah, yeah, so she, so her, and then you got the mom from Titanic running the operation. She's like the lead whore, <laughs> Frances Fisher. Um, and she, you know, I'm used to her playing like just like a stone cold bitch, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this one, she's sort of like the caretaker of the girls, and she tries to help the guys out and help them sneak out the back. And you know, she's she's like she's like uh, like the comfort food hooker. She's like, let me like she she's not just she's not there, she's just there for the good time. She's a little older, so she's also there to just like take care of you, like cook you soup and stuff. Yeah, def- <laughs> definitely better than the mall Chinese hooker. I mean, you don't want to. That's that could go all wrong in all kinds of ways. <laughs> but her and her name is strawberry alice um interesting name indeed mm. um but uh like almost like a porn name more than more than anything um but <clears throat> and then you know the i mean it's such a great like it, i don't know it's something about this movie it's like it, when you look at it on paper it's like a really like epic cast but everyone sort of like gets lost in their roles a bit like, because if you say, like, Clint Eastwood, Gene Hackman, Morgan Freeman, Richard Harris, you're like, holy shit. But, like, the way they tell the story, it doesn't feel like... Like, you know, you ever seen the movie JFK? I haven't, actually. I have not. So, a lot of people love that movie. And I, I'm, like, sort of obsessed. Not obsessed, but I really am interested in stuff like the JFK assassination and stuff like that. Mm. I find that stuff very... Like, American history and, like, big events that Conspiracy are, theories. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Like, but I don't go like down like nutty rabbit holes. I like to look into like, you know, uh, the, the details that have come out and stuff like that, and the science behind that as as time goes on. But, um, <clears throat> the movie JFK, anyway, it is to me it's a very overrated movie because it has too many familiar faces in it. Like, it has like thirty recognizable actors to the point where you're like, you feel like you're watching like the series finale of Seinfeld or something. You're just like this, like, and it's, this is supposed to be this big deal. And if you're just like, Oh, that's, you know, that's Wayne Knight and that's Tommy Lee Jones. And that's been, and you're just like looking at all these familiar faces and it's hard to like really get into the movie about an assassination of us president. I say that because in this movie, it could have been that way, but it isn't for some reason. And like, when I see like Ned Logan and stuff, I don't think of like, you know, Morgan Freeman. I, I I saw, for some reason, Ned Logan. And, you know, Clint Eastwood, who should just be uh, way too familiarized as a cowboy, uh, should be thought of as, you know, the man with no name. And But I was like, no, I'm buying this William Money thing. And then, you know, Gene Hackman and, and down the list, Richard Harris. You know, he, he probably doesn't get the credit he, um, he deserves for this movie, too. And, you know, you can go down the line, but you get, I guess you kind of get what I'm saying. And maybe that's, you know, you got to give credit to Clint Eastwood for how he told the story and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, maybe a movie that didn't have the uh, integrity that this movie did, which is, you know, obviously winning an Oscar, it would have been way more like, like, what's one of those surface level, like Young Guns or something, like a surface level Western type that's just like, or like when we were joking about the, the, the poster for mobsters, you know, it's just like bad girls. The, yeah, right. It's just like, let's get the names out there and we'll get people's asses in the seats. But with this movie, it's like they led with the story first and they just happen to have really good actors playing the roles. Yeah. And, and where, what do you always say, John? It always starts with the script and the, the script was extreme. Like uh, 
Francis Fisher said that the script was like a novel and that very few changes were made to it. Like one of the very, one of the few changes was at the beginning, the thing explaining William Money's current circumstances about how he had a wife and she passed away. Like that was supposed to be a voiceover. And instead they made it a text crawl and they, they uh, set it to a piece of music that uh, Clint Eastwood actually composed, which is really, uh, yeah. you know, on top of, you know, cause that guy doesn't have enough talent. You know, he's a musician on top of it. So. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, you like that? Check out this. <laughs> but you know what? The other thing, Mike, do you, wait, do you know, like, who was supposed to do the voiceover? Was there like a... No, I don't I don't know. It was, it was in the script it was called for to be a voiceover, and they just decided to make it a text crawl instead. Hmm. They probably would have, they probably wanted uh, Morgan Freeman, but he's already in the movie. They <laughs> couldn't do it. Well, I'll tell you what, like, you, I, I really like the point you made about how uh, it kind of ties into what I was talking about, how Clint Eastwood productions are low key and they use the word workmanlike and the, and, cause I, I saw the, uh, in the gap between podcasts, I saw the Northman in the theater. I was very oh, curious nice. about it. How and was that? It was good. It was good. It And one of the things it had in common with this movie is that both were very immersive. Like the Northman creates this unbelievable world in a, in a period of history I'm not that familiar with. We're talking pre-Norman invasion England. Like, this is like the ninth century. And, um... But, in this movie, did the same thing. Like, you know, you have this town that they built from scratch, and they their cars weren't allowed on set. And the actors just kind of stay there, and it gave this, they lent this kind of authenticity to the whole thing. Even certain details, like the horse they picked for Clint Eastwood. They picked a horse that wasn't too fancy, and you know, maybe it looked a little ornery and whatever, but the Northman was a good movie. And I, and I would definitely recommend people see it and judge it for themselves, especially if they like Robert Eggers, other stuff, but there were certain pretensions about it that it was hard to get past. And there were definitely scenes where like every actor was swinging for the goddamn fences. Like Alexander Skarsgård was in it. Ethan Hawke was in it. Uh, Nicole Kidman, like all these actors were just like, it was like, like, it's like this joke I have with my brother where it's like, oh, step back. I'm about to act the shit out of this. And then you just like, just go huge (laughs) with your gestures and your, and your, your screaming and you're like all like, you're like projecting your voice. And there was a lot of that in the movie and it did contribute to it because of the whole pillaging culture and Viking, the berserker Viking thing. But at the same time, like it was there were certain indulgences that that movie took that this one didn't like, for example, when, you know, some of the deglamorization of the, of the, uh, the Western journey was when Cooties would get sick because he's riding in the raid all day and he gets all day at night. And then he ends up getting sick while his buddies are upstairs, you know, taking advances, you know, play, (laughs) playing some nice games of billiards. You ever, (laughs) you ever position it that way? You ever like, Hey, Hey, you ever you want to play a nice game of billiards? <laughs> Fucking eight ball side pocket. Yeah, I was gonna say something about balls, but I thought it was just low hanging fruit. But to finish my point about the two movies, like I did enjoy the Northman, but like there was there were these mystical elements, and they would present these scenes that was it was like an art house feel. There was like a disconnected, like he kept foreseeing this certain thing, and I'm not gonna say what it is because I don't want to, you know potentially have any spoilers be given but he kept seeing this one thing and it would just pop up in the movie and then certain things would pop up and 
you wouldn't know if they were real or if they were just in his mind. And like mm-hmm. when <clears throat> when when William Money had the fever and he was hallucinating, he was just telling people what he saw. I think in a more I I, I don't mean to be too kind of to cut to harp on it too much but i think in a more indulgent production like we would have gotten interspersed scenes of william money hallucinating all these macabre images and of of damnation instead of him just saying what he's saying or saying what he sees and saying that he's afraid and letting that kind of stand on its own because the character doesn't seem to be afraid of anything and i like i kind of I kind of admired how subdued that was because I think, I think other filmmakers definitely would have taken that opportunity to be like, oh, this is this is my chance to show what I think hell looks like and put in like, put in some kind of like I don't know maybe jump scares or maybe some shocking imagery and this movie didn't do that because I think if it did, it would have taken you right out of it. Yeah, like if you were seeing like a like a decomposing skull and, and flames and you know, dead bodies and more skeletons and all the stuff that he said he was seeing because he was, you know, he was delirious because he had a fever. I, I like, that was one of the things I noticed, you know, you always talk about trying to watch with a more critical eye as we, you know, get deeper into this, you know, even movies that we've seen 50, 60 times or however many. And that was one of the things I know. I was like, man, I, cause I had just seen the Northman like a week before or something like that. I was like, I was like, wow, I really, I'm really glad they didn't do like some crazy, like jump cut there, like to show what he's seeing. And that's, that's very restrained filmmaking, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I like a lot of Clint Eastwood directed movies. You know, I, I was a big fan of Gran Torino and, um, you know, he, he's a, like you said, he's a man of many, many talents <laughs> and he, he, he does them all very, very well. Um, but I will say this, you know, my, the one thing about the movie that didn't stand out to me or stick with me was the music. Um, for some reason, as I was watching it, I was thinking to myself, like, man, like this movie could have been taken to like the next level if it had like a big, like a power score or something. I'm not saying like Hans Zimmer, like punch you in the face type stuff, but <laughs> I like and and maybe you know sometimes credit to a score that you don't necessarily pay attention to but it's there um which you could certainly say is the case here but nothing stood out to me and i don't i don't recall any scenes being like lifted by the music um in terms of like you know honing in on the emotion of the moment in in certain scenes whether that be a high high action scene or a high you know drama scene or, or what have you so i think my one knock on the on the movie is the music which i guess was by Lenny Nyhouse, um, I'm not, I'll admit, not too familiar with. Um, to, to, I'd have to, you know, dive in. But it looks like he did a bunch of work with Clint Eastwood. And it's one of those things where familiarity. And he worked with him on, like, Bridges of Madison County and, you know, Space Cowboys and um, a bunch of stuff. So I guess it was more one of those things like loyalty. And I think Clint Eastwood maybe is that type of guy who's like, if you're working with somebody and you build a relationship with them, you keep working with them. Oh, yeah. So. I mean, the, the, the whole crew basically were guys that like there was one like uh richard harris relayed an anecdote he said there was a guy who'd been working with clint since he was on for 35 years since he was on rawhide which and his boots that he wore were actually from rawhide you know we mentioned that's, yeah that's crazy yeah I, you know i mentioned the editor the set designer the guy who built the town you know the 
the cinematographer Jack Green, like all the all these guys were just it's just it's this team that Clint Eastwood has like put around him, and that's probably part of the reasons why, generally speaking, the productions of the films he works on run so smoothly. Yeah, um, that's a great point. Yeah, but like I, I agree with you about the score. The score was. I'll, I'll always I do remember the theme um, and it's interesting that that was the, the that was Clint Eastwood's contribution to the soundtrack and to me it's it's the most memorable because I don't even really remember the score at all like there's not a scene where it's not like there's no you know I know I know you're loath to make Star Wars references but there's like no duel of the fates on here there's no like <laughs> right. climactic song that really drives it all home or like Molossus from Batman Begins or oh. um but the theme to me is is a very good encapsulation of the movie because it's it's kind of slow and wistful, but kind of tra- yeah, like tragic at the same time. There's like there's like it it's there's some hope in there, but it seems kind of just generally down. Like it's it's just a guy reflecting on his on yeah. his time as as you mentioned your kind of interpretation of the movie. I, I mean, I always thought that the th- the theme was really strong, but the actual score. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't "quote unquote" move the needle for me. Yeah, it's no Michael Giacchino. <laughs> that guy's, in my opinion, he's the best guy going today for music. Um, and so you know, like say what you want about the Batman. Um, I really, I, I, I liked it. I'll say that. And but I feel like that was a movie that the score took it up a letter grade. Like that was the music was. Really yeah, the music good. was good. The the movie itself, like that, I I enjoyed it. But then the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. I'm kind of like that. I do want to watch it again, um, but uh, I know we're not talking about Batman here. They're like, <laughs> come on, guys, let's go get with it. But um, yeah, so I, you know, again, you got it's it is. Uh, I I don't want to backtrack on what I said before about the cast because I do believe that that they did a good job of uh, blending in really popular actors into their roles. But it is like when you look at how many people are in this movie. And you look at like the cast and think about all the characters, including like small bit characters from, you know, the saloons or the street or what have you. It, it is top heavy um, without question. And maybe it's designed that way. You know, I think, you know, Westerns a bit better than I do. Like, do you feel like the, the how Westerns are constructed, especially in, like you said, the white hat, black hat type of thing, um, even though this movie blends that and it's sort of the, it's, you know, gray hat, gray hat almost. Do you feel like westerns tend to do top heavy, so that's like the you know the 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 standoff, the duel, this guy and this guy, and then everyone everyone else kind of falls by the wayside, so to speak. I don't. I think for this movie they did. It's not like the the character development was super deep, but yeah. they managed yeah. to get little things out about most of the set, most of the characters, like how like Ned Logan just was just horny all the time, or. <laughs> How, you know, little Bill Daggett, like, he's, he want, I, I don't know why I keep saying his name like that, but um, Gene Hackman's character, want, like, he wanted more than anything to be, it seemed like he just would have been much happier being a carpenter, but he has no real talent for it, so he's a lawman. And it, it, it like, th- 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 that's a little, like, character thing, how his house is really shitty because he built it himself, and it's, it's Right, um, right. <laughs> you know, the, the, the uh, writer character who, you know, kind of gets a dose of real life as opposed to, you know, the kind of ivory tower perspective. So, I don't, I don't think this movie really short... It's not like other movies where you've got a couple characters that they focus on, everybody else is just kind of a blank. 
but um I mean, could the characters have been a little more developed? Sure. But I think I think for the amount of development they had for the, the prostitutes and the you know, uh you know, you've got your hero, you got your villain, then you kinda of have your, your secondary villain who is English Bob. Um you have, yeah. you have the writer. So I think I think just spreading around some of that stuff to some of those characters I think they did. I, I think the movie does an excellent job with that, without going too overboard about it, like without getting into I, inane detail. I does a really yeah, well put, well put. Um, and then another thing I was thinking of because I remember Eastwood was getting a lot of grief for certain things he just doesn't care about and like losses over, like the the fake baby in American Sniper. You know, mm-hmm. like he just does. He doesn't give a shit. He's like this. Not he goes. It's just not important. Like. You understand how I'm telling the story. You get it. But, and I don't know if this is how he is. I would have to honestly check out more interviews with him in terms of like his directing. But like you could definitely point out a handful of scenes, maybe even like three in this movie that you could say like those scenes are what gave this thing the statue. And as opposed to being like, here's a Clint Eastwood Western. It's like these scenes took this movie to another level and it's you know i mentioned the the gene hackman scene but if i had to point out a, a clint eastwood scene it's what, what, what you brought up you know which they don't do a lot he is sick and he he thinks he's dying and he's like which i think of westerns as these unflappable unstoppable sort of guys who won't let their guard down like they'll get shot and not tell you it hurts type of characters when i think of like classic spaghetti westerns that's how i that's how i remember them um and i know it's not always the case but you know he's laying there like just uh, like this pathetic form of a man like just without like nothing left thinking he's on his way out and he's telling ned like don't let my kids know about my transgressions Mm. he's like basically atoning almost like he's in confession at church and it's like that humble side of the reflective regretful like old dog so to speak uh carries weight in this movie to me because you know again it he goes there for the money which is a thousand dollars which i found out today would be like 30 grand and he is doing this job not for righteous reasons or or to you know help out women or or anything like that it's because he need he's desperate he needs the money and the fact that he's in this situation and he thinks he's not going to get back to his kids and he's just like just don't let them know what i was like uh you know beforehand and you know me as a dad that hits me because you know you always you don't always do the right thing sometimes you feel like you're a bad parent and stuff and you know you if you were to do bad things the way that guy did it, which is, you know, he had killed women, he had killed kids and he goes down the whole list of the things he had done in his life. And he's like, my wife, you know, reformed me and made me a better man. And then, you know, well, he had these kids, uh, just seeing him sort of like Clint Eastwood, just like in the fetal position, just like about to keel over in a Western. (laughs) Like you just don't see Clint Eastwood do that in these movies. And the fact that he went there in this movie, maybe gets him the best actor nomination, but I think also takes this movie to to the next level in terms as opposed to your standard spaghetti western yeah definitely i mean it's more nuanced and it's it's like like i you mentioned you know, we're talking about the same like almost the same scene where he's sick and yeah you know i guess maybe on one side of the coin some people could think that that 
that portrayal was too on the nose, like him saying what he was afraid of instead of showing it or, you know, leaving it as subtext. But I, you know, I think, I think some of the, sometimes the simplest stuff is the most powerful. Like, I, like the, the statement just, well, he just said, don't tell my kids. Like, and that yeah. had this huge effect on you. And it probably yeah. had a similar effect on millions of other viewers who had a similar thought for one reason or the other. Yeah, yeah. And I bet, like, older people who probably, like, maybe were the same age as Clint Eastwood when his, like, primetime westerns came out are, you know, seeing him as an older guy. Probably, like, how people, when they saw an older John Wayne in, like, True Grit, you know, and you're just seeing, like, this older, you know, not the actor, but the characters, like, them playing the older version of a character and, like, having, like, sort of, like, the past year prime and, like, you know, what'd you do with your life type of story. Like, I think a lot of people maybe relate to that if they were a similar of age as Eastwood when that came out. But one thing I did find, uh, I don't know about funny, but just so strange is like the honor of, of men in the Westerns where like he shoots the kid, but then he's like, get him a drink of water. He's thirsty. You know? And I understand the honor of that, but it's so weird because you are showing empathy for this kid, even though you just killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, like kind of, there's always a secondary kind of reading to a scene that it's just, well, maybe he just didn't want to hear him hollering because he was going to have to be up there anyway. Like he couldn't. Maybe. And, and, but yeah, there, there's definitely that component to it because he shot him and, you know, and, and, you know, that's another aspect of the movie kind of not glorifying the violence. Like if, you know, you watch Westerns and like you watch some of the older, Clint Eastwood westerns where he's like shooting five guys off a porch in one drawn sweep and it's like they all just go down and it's like it's cool because it's it's a spectacle and it's impressive but there's also none of the kind of grim realities of what would happen yeah it's like like a car it's like a carnival game it it almost feels like yeah and people you know I I was I, I this didn't occur to me until right now but I remember when Saving Private Ryan came out and uh, part of the acclaim for Saving Private Ryan, among the many things that made that an impressive film, was the fact that, you know, in the movies, sit, like, violence tends to serve the, the plot's purpose. Like, if it's not an important person, they're just going to die right away, and that's going to be it. And you're not going to feel bad. Yeah. But yeah. If, it's, if it's somebody who has, like, if their name's on the poster, like, they're going to get the whole, I'm so cold. <laughs> <laughs> they get to do that whole thing. They'll be like, just, just tell my wife I'm sorry. And we'll always have robot. <laughs> so you so like so to that to that end, I mean it's like there's different portrayals of the effect because like people I don't want to overly generalize, but I would say more people than not are fascinated with violence or they, they enjoy it or like they, there's a certain enjoyment to watching action on screen. But if it gets a little too realistic, it, it takes all that away. It takes away the antiseptic. Like I just wanted to see the, the slam bag. I want to see the gun shoot and I wanted to see all the, like the, like the tension and all that stuff. I don't want to see yeah. a guy like, talking about how he's thirsty and he's dying behind a rock because he got gut shot with a rifle while right. he, while he's crawling with a broken leg. And, right. you know, this movie does a lot of that. And, like, the point I was making about Saving Private Ryan was Saving Private Ryan got so much... A lot of the critical accolades were for 
doing that, for making the violence not so... Like, you see these background characters, and they're wailing and calling for their mothers, and, you know, their their organs are laying on the beach. And, you know, the, I'm not going to say that that ripped this off, or that's, like, a unique idea, but, I mean, this movie was kind of the... What, like, they, they, it was kind of the first to like plumb into that where people are begging for their lives or the deaths aren't exactly smooth or right. Um, I things like that. I, w- I wonder if it's a situation where like that, like that scene is like sort of in there and set up that way to show that yeah he's still he's back in the mix doing this stuff, but he's not that guy who would like cold-bloodedly kill a woman or kids or something like that like he is reformed he's still he's in the mix here and he's willing to do it unlike ned and unlike the kid but it's it's different now yeah and it it could be just there's it it could be that it was it was done in such a way that it's all those things all that stuff going on all at once yeah or or, yeah interpret it as you will sort of thing like take what take from the scene what you get what you get out of it and um, but I do feel like at the end, when he goes to you know, confront him after what happens to Ned, and it's just like the last like stand and the sort of uh, the final climactic battle, when he like goes in there and you feel like it just feels like vintage Eastwood. He's like, "Who owns this shithole?" <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's my favorite single line in the movie. Yeah, um, I just felt really good hearing him say that, and then how he's just sort of becomes like dirty harry in a way where he's just like waiting for someone to make a move and then he winds up taking the rifle and throwing it at hackman and getting his pistol out and just that whole that whole thing felt like he became you know who we maybe would have seen as uh his character before them like back in his day yeah incidentally i i had to watch dirty harry right after i watched this I don't know. Oh, okay. I, it was like right there on Netflix, and I'm just like, oh, okay. I'll just watch Dirty Hair. Like, yeah, it's, it goes down. Was a sudden impact? What? Was a sudden impact? No, it was just it was the original, original Dirty Hair. Oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, the the shootout at the end, like one of the things that that kind of feeds in. I don't I don't want to keep repeating myself, but one of the things I thought was how it treated because like you watch a movie like. I, I know it's pretty easy to take shots at this one, but like you, like you watch like Mission Impossible 2 and Tom Cruise is on a Ducati going like 100 miles an hour and he does like a front wheel 180, whips his arm around and then like shoots the gas tank, which is like, you know, a pretty small target on a car and it blows up, even though that's not where the gas tank is, but that's a whole fucking separate thing. <laughs> um, but like, then you watch this movie and... Clint Eastwood walks into a room full of guys, shoots one, and nobody does anything because violence is hard to perpetrate. Because, like, like the old expression, people didn't know whether to shit or go blind. Like, if, if that was like a, like a Robert Rodriguez movie or a John Woo movie or, you know, something else... And this isn't anything against those guys. I'm just saying it's just kind of a difference between stylized violence and introducing kind of a more realistic element to it i mean these guys weren't seasoned lawmen and they just kind of of froze up and it it kind of in a way it's not exactly the same but to me it has a similarity to the scene we were talking about where he gives he gives the civilian a loaded gun because he knows he's not going to do anything with it right and then even if he does he's just going to kill him so like (laughs) 
it, that kind of adds a little a little sick twist to that whole scene where it's like, oh, maybe I'll just get to shoot this guy. Like if he right. if he decides to fuck around, I'll just I'll just blast him. But like I always thought that you know like one way to look at that scene at the end is like it's kind of Hollywood. It's like, well, why didn't they just all start shooting at once? It's like well, it's not that easy. It's like right. Gene Hackman says to Saul Rubinek, uh, the actor who played Beauchamp, he's like, he goes, he, he said, it's hot, ain't it? Talking about <laughs> holding a loaded gun and pointing it at somebody and knowing right. that, you know, if you pull the trigger, that's going to be it for them, probably. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's, that's true, man. <laughs> like, yeah. So that lends itself to what you were saying before about the nuance, nuance element of it and not going for the typical um exaggerated movie version of what would happen like Eastwood's kind of saying like if these human beings were in this room how would this actually go down and you know you brought that up before about another scene and that plays that that exact thing plays here as well so I think you really hit on that as something that makes this movie stand out compared to others of its kind yeah, and, um, and maybe to some people that might be boring or it might be contrived, but I think it's, you know, I've never actually tried to shoot anybody, so I can't imagine it's <laughs> as easy. Like, I don't I don't think it's as easy as it is in your head when you're angry at a stranger. Like, I think it's, yeah, it's right? different. It's, it's different. Like, that's, that's basically you're playing your own movie in your head where you're the star and there's no right. context or anything. It's not like you're actually there. Or anything this like. isn't Val Kilmer's Doc Holiday. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man, but yeah, that's you know, but one of the many things this movie does well that you know might, I think it's part of the reason it's held in such high regard even after all this time. And you know, you were if, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and it's not you know, it, it's a little diversionary, but it has to do with the fact that you, kind of the interconnected nature of westerns, like how they all kind of there's kind of recurring themes and even works borrow from each other like the the novel that inspired the uh screenplay by uh david webb peoples i believe his name is the who also wrote blade runner which is another classic was yeah. this novel called the shootist which was john which was also adapted into a movie that was john wayne's last movie so that's how long it took for this movie to develop it was like it was a novel this one writer option like decided to make a derivative script based off of it, but then it was adapted in its own right directly. And it ended up being John Wayne, who was probably the only bigger icon in Westerns than Clint Eastwood. But you might even be able to make the argument that Clint Eastwood's bigger, but, um, Oh yeah. I don't know. Tough, that, that might be a good barroom argument. Who's, who's more, who's the bigger Western icon. That's true. I think it's like one of those things. It's like Beatles, Stones. Like, uh, who did your parents listen to? You know, like yeah, or what? Like, what? What movies did you watch? Or like, yeah, how old are you? Because like, I don't. I haven't seen a lot of John Wayne movies. I. I mean, I'm no, not, neither have I. I mean, yeah. I'm not even really well as well versed in the Clint Eastwood catalog as I would like. Do you have a Do you have a favorite western? I mean, I know we talked about Tombstone. Like Tombstone's really strong, but I'm talking about like, like pre. Kind of like the spaghetti western era, like you know, um, late '60s I, to like 1985, maybe. Like, do you have like do you, would, have, do you have like a favorite western or like a group of favorites? Um, I would say because I remember this the most as a kid. My dad always liked watching The Good, Bad, and the Ugly, 
and then you know fortified <laughs> by becoming a metallica fan and that song and that movie meaning so much to them and every time i hear it i get chills and like, like the hair stands on my arm and like everything about that you know the the climax of that movie uh so it's got to be that um but you know this one honestly has got to be up there just because of everything we talked about in terms of it's uh sort of taking a the more realistic human approach uh to westerns whereas the other ones were a bit over the top uh, on purpose for the entertainment element of it mm-hmm. Sat- saturday matinee style ser- uh, serial but uh, yeah, I think Good, Bad, and the Ugly. I know it's pretty cliche of a pick, I guess, but I mean, my dad always liked it, and that was kind of the one that stuck out to me because I've never been a huge, huge Western fan. I feel like I'm getting more into them now, and I think even just you know doing the podcast and, and doing two of them, and you know us talking about it has made me appreciate them more than I probably would have before. The next one on your list should be High Plains Drifter because my my favorite Western is either High Plains Drifter or Fistful of Dollars. And I, I I don't want to say anything to ruin it. I think you should just you should just watch it and enjoy it. Uh, what oh, year did that come out? Oh, I think nineteen seventy three. I'm okay. I'm I'm not a hundred percent on that year. It might, it was definitely in the early seventies though. And uh, it's either those. Oh, you two, got it, you son of a bitch. You it's got e- it. it's one of those two or Once Upon a Time in the West. Because Once Upon a Time in the West, but Once Upon a Time in the West is like this sprawling epic. It's almost kind of like the the Magnificent Seven a little bit, but it's uh, is is High Plains Drifter uh like the same character with the man with no name, or is it just a, a completely different character? It kind of is. You'll see. I mean, you should okay. definitely put it on your list, though. I, like if you, but if you seen Pale Rider, I think Pale Rider was kind of like a soft remake of it, kind of like how. Never Say Never Again was kind of like this weird remake of Thunderball. It was kind of like oh, the same yes. thing. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Like 1983, they tried to bring back the magic with Connery. <laughs> um, but you, you know what's uh, – one thing we didn't talk about is how this movie performed, which is incredibly well. Uh, $14 million budget in 1992 – uh, and made 160 million. Yeah, it, it was Clint Eastwood, so the budget was probably like 20, and it was like, and it was like, yeah, it's 14. And he just, I don't know what he did with the other. Six <laughs> what? What he fund? He would fudge his numbers? No, I no. I, it was just feeds into that whole thing. Is his production usually? Oh, the come efficiency. In, yeah, yeah, they usually come in yeah. under budget and on time. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. Hmm. Um, now, in in terms of, uh, I guess there was a remake of this made in japan i haven't seen did you have you seen that no no i haven't okay. it has ken uh watanabe 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 yeah uh it's like the, the one thing guy. i know about japanese language is that all the vowels all the vowels always sound the same fake uh <laughs> razal ghoul from batman begins um but yeah you know other other aspects of this movie that uh that's that not a, that's up. not a western right is that actually oh uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay. The, that... the remake you're saying? Yeah. I Yeah, I, I have no idea. I just know, like, it said there was a remake made um, in, in 2013 or two. Uh... No, it was set. It, it looks like it was set during Samurai Times, Feudal Japan. Gotcha. Okay. Kind of like what they did the... with, um, they did the reverse for um, 
that that Bruce Willis movie, Last Man Standing, which kind of had oh. a Western feel to it, but it was more modern. It was in the 20s or the 30s. Mm. Uh, that was just a remake of Yojimbo, basically, which was a samurai movie. Yeah, those two genres blend a lot. But yeah, it, it feeds into a lot of the same concepts. It's it's hard men living hard lives that are governed by a, a kind of a code of conduct or like a rule of honor, like in at and the, least the hero's in, journey, you know. Yeah, except in you know in feudal Japan, there was more of a philosophical underpinning to it, where in you know the West, it was more of an unspoken thing. Yeah, I, I would say, but. Um, <laughs> yeah so so where does where does unforgiven stack up for you you're a bigger western fan than me is it in your top five i i think i think unforgiven because it just breaks the mold so much it's kind of its own thing and not to keep you know repeating myself but i know that's not what they set out to do with this movie but that's kind of what they ended up doing was you you've made you know you have your textbook western where you've got your good guys and your bad guys and you have your you know your clear your like your heist or like whatever's driving the plot forward, like the the kidnap victim or the treasure or whatever the case might be. And uh, this movie just doesn't really it, it kind it has that, but it has its own twist on it. Like the like the the good's not so good, the evil's not so evil. The the thing they're trying to avenge isn't so pure. I mean, granted, I mean hookers are people too, but I mean you know you you yeah, look at it from yeah. a strictly moral standpoint. It's like they're right. not, you know, completely clean either. So, I Unforgiven is one of my, like, definitely one of my, like, I don't know, top 20 movies. I don't know where it would rank, but, um, I, I mean, I had such fond memories of this when I was a kid. And, you know, like, watching it now, all these years later, you just have, once you have all those westerns under your belt, and then you see what this kind of does with it, kind of turns it on its ear a little bit, um... I mean, it's definitely yeah. up there. I mean, it's the, but, the, but like if I'm thinking about just straight up like classic westerns, like I, it's almost to me like they're playing in different leagues. I, I may, and that might be kind of a cop out, but that's that's what I think. Do you think this movie was made with the idea of hunting down awards? I don't. Th well, like I, what Clint Eastwood said about his career, he thought he would never. He thought he was never in the mix for stuff like that. He thought his movies were too commercial. So I don't, I, again, not to take shots at movies that strive to win awards, but it's, it's, it's kind of annoying to watch. The piano. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for beating me to it. When, when you're watching a movie like the piano and it's like, it only exists just to be in this, like just this circle jerk for people to be like, what we do is so important. It's like, it's taking it. <laughs> like just too far it's like yes entertainment is important but when you start talking about it like i don't know like it, it's some kind of divine thing that's shaping lives and then you i, I don't know you you know it when you <laughs> yeah just farting into a fucking champagne flute and smelling it because you just you dig your own brand that huffing much. it <laughs> yeah i mean no, I, I don't. I don't think this movie was made like that. And you know, maybe that's um, maybe I'm going too easy on it. But I just 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 from the look, the my knowledge of Clint Eastwood as a filmmaker and his <clears throat> attitude towards things, it seemed like he just wanted to make. He had this. He had this idea, and he just executed it, and and he did it extremely well. Whether it was entirely by design or some of it, as we always like to 
becoming was just quick becoming one of the uh overused phrases all the happy accidents but i think i think this movie everything was very deliberate and uh you know some of the like i said like some of the restraint they showed i i don't think like they definitely weren't there was no big like you know sometimes movies have that that moment where it's like that's the that's the fucking clip they sent to the academy oh yeah yeah and i don't really think this like this movie has scenes that are that level but i don't think any of the scenes were designed that way but i i could be totally wrong what do you think I, 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 yeah, I don't know. Like, um, I, I do kind of see Clint Eastwood and understand that he was felt he was more of like an outsider, uh, on Hollywood because you know he's right leaning politically, and that's that's definitely a, yeah. a bigger hill, a bigger hill to climb with the Academy to to win an award. Um, but so so I yeah I I don't think so. Um, I just think he takes his craft seriously he wanted to be taken seriously and uh he sure as hell was and he he had carved out quite the career when he could have just been known as the cowboy guy and he could have just f- fallen off the face of the earth in the late 80s and nobody heard of clint eastwood again yeah it, it's uh, like it's like this not movie, the case yeah this movie's like simultaneously like a love letter and kind of a like a kind of a teardown of, of the, the myth of the Western. And it's like, and it's loaded with all these Easter eggs from different Westerns. Like I mentioned, he wore his boots and some of the shots were, that were selected were shot from the same angle and same time of day. Like the opening and closing were both from High Plains Drifter. They were exact same. Uh, yeah. The guy who played Skinny, Anthony, Anthony James, he was like a famous character actor. He did a bunch of Westerns. He was in High Plains Drifter. Supposedly Richard Harris... And this might be one of those, again, this might be a little bit of a cock and bull story, but supposedly he was watching High Plains Drifter when Clint Eastwood called him to offer him this part, and he thought it was a joke because it was just <laughs> too weird. But, you know, we didn't really talk about his performance all that much. Um, oh, I, I'm all about it. Let's talk about it. Please. Um, I mean, where, where to start? Where, what, do you, what do you know him best from? Richard Harris? Yeah. I would I probably say Gladiator because I'm just I, I'm not too well acquainted with his. Uh... I would say either Gladiator or Harry Potter. Oh yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> I like those I like those movies, um, but yeah I I found I don't know I I liked I I, I kind of wish his character was around a little longer I'll say that I I feel like he we we get introduced to him there's an intrigue about him. Um, you know he's clearly the most um, off the beaten path in terms of what you would think of someone in a western should be like, and then you know it turns out a lot of things we hear about him are are falsified or or, or sort of fabricated and sort of like how you know someone may want to uh, create a fiction fi- fictional legacy for themselves so to speak, uh, but then like once he gets torn down. I felt like that happened kind of quickly and like we, and then he, they, they ship him off and then that, that's it. Like they, he does, it's not one of those things where in the last act he returns to put a bullet in Gene Hackman's back. And so, you know, it's just like he leaves and that, that he literally left, he's gone. And then the, the, the biographer sticks around. And it was, yeah, it, it was interesting to me because he, you know, when he sees little bill, like he, he, and he thought he was dead and he know he knows it's like oh well this guy 
he, this guy was there. He knows all the like they they were in the same towns at the same times. Yeah. For some things, and he's like, this guy knows I'm full of shit, and I know that he's he's a legitimately hard man. Like one of the things that I thought was really interesting about his performance was. That when he was reading the script, supposedly he said to Clint Eastwood, because we, you know we've talked about kind of the, the bullshitting and the tall tales and how like you met you you refer to it as a game of telephone, how everything just gets blown out of proportion, and then there's yeah. there's the people who want to build their reputation out of hot air, and then there's the people who actually have the reputation or try to live it down, like Clint Eastwood, who ends up going Clint Eastwood's character, who ends up going on almost a reverse hero's journey and descent into madness. And is only yeah. saved by a closing credits text crawl because it's pretty easy to see if he would have maybe he just he just decided to embrace that's who he was, but that's not the direction the movie took. But that's a good point. Yeah, circling back to I, I, I digress a little bit. I apologize, but Richard Harris said when he was reading the script, he thought it would be intriguing for English Bob's whole posh like european act to be like just to be just that and it kind of happens when he has the shit kicked out of him he's on a stagecoach out of town and he's kind of doing the whole cockney thing talking about how the whores and they have no laws and like it like the whole facade falls away and apparently that was all richard harris's kind of idea to bring to the script yeah and i guess there's a bit of um you know, like what, what's like the least American thing possible? Like what's the most American thing possible in cinema? It's like the old West cowboy. And what's the least like some British guy pretending to be a cowboy. You know, <laughs> you've, been, so. you've been talking about the queen again, Bob on independence <laughs> day. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought he was really good, but it was just like really quick, um, but still uh, entertaining. And it's, it certainly helped uh, push the story and the character for uh little bill um and and him sort of like him being able to read people and know people and you know he has these old acquaintances or if you want to call them you know a rival or whatever and he, he, he works those size, tough towns yeah he knows how to size people up and i feel like his character was used as a tool to help um shape uh the the arc or or journey for for little bill so to speak and yeah, I mean, he did a good job. He's he's definitely a classic actor, and a lot of people know him for different things based on you know how old you are. For me, it's Gladiator and Harry Potter, but I know for a lot of people, it's a lot of older movies. Uh, but he, yeah, I thought he was really good in this. But you, I can't help but think about something you just said about um, uh, Will Money in terms of uh, Clint Eastwood's character in terms of like the end of the movie because like that whole time I'm watching. And I've said it like multiple times on this podcast is that like, you know, he's not there to do the right thing. He's sort of atoning for his mistakes, but also he, he, his family needs the money and he's doing it for that reason. Like he's putting himself in danger and going back into it and barely can ride a horse these days. He forgot how to do that. And uh, who knows how good of a shot he is and, you know, all, all that stuff. He gets sick. Um, he's doing it at a necessity. It's a desperation move. Um, but at the end he says, you know, if Ned doesn't get a proper burial, if you hurt any more of these women, I'm going to come back. So it's like, what's well, like, well, wait a minute. Is he just fucking saying that so that people are like, Oh, I guess he's a good guy. Or is he fucking serious? I, mean, I, you know, I think it could be read either way. Like I, I always, when I, I, I just kind of thought of it as more of a bluff 
because he didn't know who was going to be waiting for him in the street. Uh, yeah. And, he's probably like, fuck this shit. Or maybe he, maybe he was completely unhinged. He was talking about how he's going to, uh, any son of a bitch takes a shot at me, I'm going to kill him and his wife. Yeah. And all his yeah. friends. Burn his goddamn house down. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> what else, man? <laughs> and no, it, yeah. I, I, I feel like he was, it had to have been full of shit, too. Because the thing about everything he went through, and he survives it somehow... You know, gets his money and gets the write off and help his kids out. Like, he doesn't want to orphan his kids to save hookers, right? Mm. So, I, I, I'm with you in that. I think it might have been just one of those like, let me be the badass here yeah. on my exit. Um, or it was the only way to secure his exit without, you know, having to shoot his way out out of a like down a dark street when it's raining. Yeah, yeah, right. So I don't know. Did, did you have like I? I clearly said I thought Hackman, even though he got the supporting nomination and award, I thought he was the best performance. The, or, where are you with that? Who? Who was it? Clint for you? Or yeah, I think so. Just because you know he's the eponymous character. Well, he's the title character, and um, just like I said, some of the some of the scenes with him where he took very little and kind of conveyed a lot like he like i've never been more in like kind of intimidated by somebody drinking before and i and i've seen you know i've seen you know i've seen a lot of movies and they try to do that a lot where they'd be like a guy's drink it's like whoa this guy means business i've never yeah. i haven't seen a scene where somebody means more business than, than clint eastwood oh i got one what superman three no 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 just, yes. Just once can we not do the fucking shitty Superman movies? <laughs> what are you looking at? Huh? <laughs> He's flicking peanuts through the mirror in the bar and just hammering shots of whiskey <laughs> with his oil-soaked Superman suit. Unbelievable. What's mm. more intimidating than Superman drunk? A violent drunk Superman? You don't want to deal with that. You don't want any of that. <laughs> Hey, I didn't bring up Superman four, but but wasn't it kind of played for fucking laughs? Like it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. It was like a, it was like it was kind of like when Ben Affleck played that fucking uh, juice head in that HBO like light light families in crisis those life stories things, and oh, he's God. he's fucking beating his girlfriend up, and then they made it. I th I still think they made an oblique reference to that in South Park when, uh, <laughs> when the kid. God, what when the what's the kid? Jimmy, when he got on steroids, yeah, you, you, you push, leave me, and I'll kill you, bitch. <laughs> push, push, push it, push, push it. Um, no, yeah, it, it, yeah. I mean, Superman three is a ridiculous movie too. And that right after that, he he lands into the uh, junkyard and fights himself, and Clark wins. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, Richard Pryor, though, pretty funny in that movie. Not gonna lie. Do you think this That's movie? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, do you, like, Tombstone had its share of humor. Like, this movie really didn't, in my opinion. Aside from, like, stuff that I found funny that maybe isn't deliberately supposed to be funny. Like, like who owns this shithole? Like, I thought that I'd laughed my ass off when he said that. But, like, there wasn't a ton of humor in this movie. I, I thought that, I thought it had some humorous moments, like when, uh, you know, uh, like some of the details from your favorite scene where he's talking about how, Two gun Corcoran is like he's he was he did it wasn't because he carried two guns he's like oh like, yeah like that's funny and 
interesting thing about that is uh, that got worked into the like the kind of a tales from the set thing, which, which I always find funny, is that there was a cameraman working on this on this movie that Clint Eastwood met for the first time, and his name was Corky Corker, and he's like, "That's not your real name." And the guy's like, well, his name was like John or something, but he went by Corky. And then they ended up putting that in the script because Clint Eastwood thought it was such a funny name. And then they created this whole story about it. Um, also, I, I was, was hung um, like a horse. What? And he was hung like a horse? Yeah, because his, his dick was bigger than the barrel that Walker Colt he carried. <laughs> um, but of all the performances, I mean, I wasn't... I was pretty annoyed by the whole Schofield kid thing, but I guess that, you know, that actor did a good job because that's not like a, that's not going to be like an enviable, admirable part. It's going to be a, a one upper and a bullshit artist. We all know how much fun those people are to be around. <laughs> oh my God. You know it, pal. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking one uppers are the worst. Just, just never let a story stand. Just, yep, I, I did something like that, but better. Or I did right. something like that, but it was even crazier. And then cue Billy Madison. No, no, you didn't. <laughs> you can imagine what it'd be like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, man. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a, like a ton else. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying, you know, let's push the podcast just for the sake of making it longer. But are there, are there other elements that we haven't tackled that uh, we need to dive into here? Is it, it did this movie have any sort of timely influence on anything that came thereafter? Um, you know, I, I, I thought about this a lot. And, like, you know, I like the movie quite a bit. And I just, I think I am getting a little tired of how everything it seems it was kind of the first at least in my memory i mean i don't i don't know i'm sure they've been doing this stuff for a long time but when you throw around the word postmodern where it's something supposed to be something exists kind of to tear down an institution or to give a i i one of the words i saw uh I just don't want people to think I oh I'm I'm such an intellect I came up with this on my own but I saw in in relation to this movie was revisionist they called it a revisionist western because hmm. it did play against all those things and now that's like such a buzzword now and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, I think I think this is actually you know we usually talk about the positive cultural impact but I think there's a lot of movies and TV shows now that exist and it's almost like they're just here. It's like, well, oh, people love this stuff and we're going to trash it. Like we're going to we're going to completely destroy it and turn it on its head. And this might have been and even though this movie didn't set out to do that, that's how people yeah. interpreted it because that's, yeah. you know, it had all these connections to the to the world of westerns and, you know, starting with Clint Eastwood himself and all the actors involved and the, you know, plot elements and things like that, but um you know, it, it, like we've, I think I've said this at least once before. Um, I picked this up from one of one of my professors. Once you once you put art out into the world, you can't really control what people think of it. So yeah, I I, I think in this case, as much as I enjoy this movie and some of the like a lot of the things it did, now it's like when 
there's a new movie that comes out and it's basically just there to, I don't know. It's just, it's like, well, we're going to take this thing that everybody loves and we're, and we're just going to, we're just going to do the opposite. We're going to, it's, it's like, it's almost like that's, it's like cheap heat. It's like, it's, it's, you're, you're trying to draft. It's, it's trying to have it both ways. You're trying to draft off the intellectual pro an established intellectual property. And then you're trying to just like, Oh, well I'm, I'm showing how stupid this all is. It's like, well, why didn't you just come up with your own idea then? I don't know. But like I that that postmodern idea came into my head and I was like this is the first movie I really remember where they started going after stuff like that where stuff wasn't, you know, like the the whole world is shades of gray. It's not there's no Yeah. You know, like you look at this movie and it's you, you, we're obviously the rooting interest is with a a people who've taken on a pair of bounties because right. the world around them is so loathsome. And that's kind of, you know, it's interesting, but at the same time, I, I kind of wish that there weren't as many projects trying to do the same thing. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I was well, rambling it, a little bit. It, on that, it does. And I think something that, that people draw to these types of characters and these types of stories, because you take the hero out of these stories and then you get what real life is like, you know, because there's so much, there's so much like tragedy and disaster and horrible things that happen in the real world that everyone's like, man, if Superman only existed, you know, like he could have stopped the planes from hitting the Twin Towers or, you know, like stuff like that. And like on a Western, on a Western example, it's like in real life, you know, probably, you know, those prostitutes get killed and like thrown into a ditch somewhere and that's the end of that story yeah but here comes the hero uh it's an anti-hero which makes it even cooler because he's like has this edge to him and he's got his own problems and all that sort of stuff and you put all that stuff together and put it in a stew and say it's clint eastwood who's doing it and it's just like it's a it's a no doubter <laughs> it's it's just a it's a it's a 2-0 fastball with the bases loaded and that thing's going 450 into the seats. Uh, I, you just—it's just that's just how it is with Clint Eastwood, man. Do and, you, uh, let me ask you: Do you think this this might be enough? Maybe maybe this is clearer in your head than mine because I I do you think Clint Eastwood is a better actor or a better director? Director. Oh, okay. So you. Yeah. Okay. I I think he's a fine actor. I'm not saying he's not, but. Uh, I just feel like when I watch his movies, I'm typically more impressed by what what he makes as opposed to what he's delivering. But one thing I'll say this about Clint Eastwood, and this this also came to me as I was watching the movie, was that he's a very physical actor in terms of his face, more so than how he delivers his lines. Like the things that he does, like he's a good reactor. Uh, he's also like. You can tell like what he's thinking and how he furrows his brow and how he looks at certain things and stuff like that. He's almost a better actor in that way than stuff that's on the pages that he delivers. Like sometimes the way he delivers a line, I'm not saying it's flat or anything, but it, it, it there's always a, like a similar way in which he delivers his lines. He doesn't always go too high. He doesn't go too low. He's just kind of like right there. He has his own little like pace and tone, but he's a very facially emotive actor. And I think that's a really cool thing about him. And I think that plays well with the Westerns, you know, because sometimes, you know, like even Gene Hackman's character says, like, you know, 
being calm and being the observer and so you know stuff like that is is better than being you know like you said the uh, the empty can rattles the most sort of mm-hmm. thing where you know the people who rifle off are usually the ones who get the rifle and um you know i i like that clint eastwood sort of plays that you know calm and collected let me observe and see what's going on and then you wind up being the smartest person in the room and the way he acts, I think, plays to that very well. It's a good strength for him. And um, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying he's a bad actor. I think he's a very good actor. Um, but I, I appreciate the nuances in his physical performance um, more so than how he like delivers lines and stuff. Uh, okay. I see. I was looking at it a little differently because I just I just think about the co- the contributions he's made as an actor versus what he's made as a director and like a lot. Of, yeah. Like, like some of his movies, I don't care for at all. Like, uh, like Million Dollar Baby. Like, I don't like that. movie. I never saw that. I skipped that. And, uh, yeah. You know, like, and he, you know, he's done so many. He's directed a lot of movies over the years, and not all of them have gotten the run that Unforgiven have. Like, he did this movie called Blood Work, where he played like a yeah like a reporter or slash cop, or I don't even remember. It was like so forgettable. But yeah, um, I I just thought have that. Good. Have you seen Absolute Power? Yeah. That's a good movie. I enjoyed that. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah. I always, I just thought it was funny how uh, Eastwood said this was going to be the last time he ever uh, directed and acted in a movie at the same time. But I think once, once like they won all, like once it won four Oscars, it was it, it kind of maybe, maybe, maybe he was really considering hanging it up, and then this kind of gave him the shot in the arm, kind of the validation he needed to keep, you know, appearing in movies and directing them. Yeah, it could be because I wonder if like when you, especially in the early '90s, like I'm not saying it's that long ago, but I think being in your early '60s is different in the early '90s than it is today. Yeah, and- I, I, I don't think being in your '60s today is considered old, whereas in the early '90s, I think it probably still was. Yeah, but the, you watch Clint, you you watch Clint Eastwood like bounding around that set, like in or you know riding a horse. I mean, dude looks. Yeah, I mean, I probably I'm gonna bash myself a little bit. I probably couldn't have kept up with him on the set of that movie. Oh, but um, (laughs) I'd be like, "Where's the air conditioning?" (laughs) All of a sudden, I'm Saul Saul Rosenberg. (laughs) Oh, where's my shoes and my glasses? I've been on this step ladder for forty minutes. Oh, (laughs) I can't get on a horse. Do you have a ladder? No, that's what they had to do for the close-up shots because the horses wouldn't stay still, so they just sit on step ladders. And did well, didn't he also? They they purposely did something with the horse in the scenes where he couldn't get on it to make it like jerk. Yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, because Cody Eastwood lives on a ranch. He would know how to do that. Yeah, he just it was just all he had to do was like hold on to one side and pull to one side. It was like Clint Eastwood, unbelievable. Yeah. For sure, but uh, yeah, I don't the man know. is an institution. Mike is what he is. He, I mean, you got—he's the man with no name. He's Dirty Harry. He's—he uh, did Mystic River. If you—if you go in for that, um, yeah. Even though Sean okay. Penn did do some capital A acting in that one, that was not—that did not have the same level of restraint that I felt this movie did. But, yeah, um, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I thought that'd be like a maybe a longer discussion, but. No, I, I respect I respect your resoluteness on the topic, but yeah, this 
No, this movie. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you liked it so much because this could have been like uh, this could have been like a RoboCop episode where it's just like 90 minutes of me trying to talk you into why you should like it, <laughs> and then you uh, grudgingly yeah, I, agreeing, and then we just end it. <laughs> uh, dude, the funniest thing about that is, I, I it's not that I didn't like RoboCop because I always like, especially with us doing this, unless it's a movie we both think sucks ass, which might happen one day where we both like break the mold and 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 agree that we're going to announce a, sh- a shit movie and just roast the fuck out of it and take out all of our aggressions on it and it'll probably be our highest viewed episode ever mm. but uh like robocop i look you know i i like it and I, I i looked for the the things that i liked in it more than the things i didn't like it's definitely not even close to one of my favorite movies it's it's an enjoyable movie to me and i know how much you love it but I didn't. I didn't dog on it that bad. I don't think. I think I kind of went went along for the ride pretty well. Oh, so no, no, I don't think you did either. I just, I, I just, I just know that was one where we kind of like weren't on the same page. I, I felt like I, like I don't know, but it's fine. I, 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 the. You mentioned how much you like Gene Hackman in this movie. You thought he was basically the MVP of the movie. What do you oh, think yeah. the movie would have been like if he played William Money? Because that was in the works at one point, but he turned it down for kind of like one of those actory reasons. He said he didn't want to do violent films, but it's like you were in the fucking French Connection. Like I don't, I, where yeah. I just don't get where that stuff. Like I know sometimes maybe people's sensibilities change as they get older, but like I don't, I don't get him saying like, oh, I didn't want to be in a violent. It's like, dude, you were in, you were in some of like the best action movies ever made. Like why? And he did the Quick and the Dead three years later. That's a that's such a better point. That's so, oh my god, yeah. Or 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 you know some some actors win the Oscar and then they're like fuck it now now I'll do whatever. <laughs> do you um so what what do you think? How do you think he would have done in the Clint Eastwood part? Do you think it would have the really, same weight? Probably really well, just because he's such a great actor. I really like Gene Hackman. He's not, again one of those people <clears throat> like that just cut from his own mold, and it's just such a like anything he's in, like it's good. Even like like. Any comedies like Heartbreakers, The Birdcage, like the guy can do a lot of stuff. Um, I don't. I like him better as a bad guy. I like Gene Hackman better as a villain. So I don't know that I would have loved him necessarily in the in that role. Though I think he probably would have crushed it anyway because he just does that. Um, I think I think Clinton was the right move there. Um, I I think they did it exactly how they probably should have. Okay. Yeah, maybe maybe it's fun. What, what, what do you you think the other way? You think he no, been... no, no. I think it's fun to think about, but I think I I think having I don't know if we're repeating ourselves too much, but if it, if it you know you have the the guy who is one of the you know let's not get into a whole like superlative thing, but one of the top three faces of the American Western, and then he lends his face to this. It's like you know Gene Hackman for like all this all the cool stuff he's done in his career he's not like he's not from that world so it's like i think he would have done a different job but it wouldn't have had the same kind of meta referential meta referential effect that that this did the six syllable word i don't even know if i used it correctly probably not if i go above five syllables it's like a fucking coin flip if i use that word correctly yeah, but no one's looking that up, so you just look smart no matter what. <laughs> Bearded Although, toy guy, look it up. <laughs> depending on who you're with, someone would have pulled out a seven-syllable word, I'm sure. Um, 
that was made up. Um, but I digress on that. Yeah, this is a good movie. I'm glad you picked it. Uh, I'm glad Thanks, that man. you're making me appreciate westerns more than I would have had we not been doing this podcast. Dude, so you, thank you for that. You, we we don't have to do an episode about it because I came to it late in life. But you got like sometime in the next couple of months, you got to watch High Plains River and tell me. What I wrote about. it down. I that that's not gonna be one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, cool, and then I don't fucking do it. Like I'll watch it. Like I one I have to watch that was a, that was required reading by uh, one of my. Uh, by my chiropractor who listens to the show sometimes he said i should listen to uh yeah i should definitely watch the outlaw josie wales so I that's think, what i've heard yeah. yeah i should i should get that one in but um was there anything else you wanted to cut i mean this one i think there was like a lot of meat on the bone but this isn't gonna be like you know a, a two and a half hour plus podcast i think we covered a lot of stuff i i, I actually keep repeating myself so i i don't know if i if that's a little too I much think, fluff, but I think we've covered a lot. I, I hope I hope everybody learned yeah. a lot about the movie. Maybe has a new appreciation for it. But from what I from the from the interactions I saw on our, our social media, I did I did think uh, I think people do have a fondness for this movie. And I, I think it's it's not one of those movies that critics like and people don't. You know, right? Um, but yeah. Uh, no, I, I really yeah. enjoyed revisiting it too. And I, I'm just glad I'm glad you were along for the ride too because like. You know, a lot of times we, do, you know, we do these movies, and you know, it's just like it's just stuff we've seen so many times, and um, <laughs> that's true. Know, go, go so this far is, with that, but uh, yeah, it's a great pick, man. No, no question, uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope, uh, or we did it, we did it justice, because I don't know how many you're better at this shit. I don't know how many best picture winners we've done so far. Oh, uh, we'll, um, well, we did The Godfather very recently. Um, Godfather that's definitely one. Did Gladiator win Best Picture? I think it did. Yeah. Uh, Pulp Fiction. Maybe Best Director. Yeah, I don't think Pulp Fiction did, but there may be another one or two that we've done. But either way, it, you know, I, I hope we did it justice for our audience, and because uh, I know you know this movie may not be you know pop culture relevant in 2022. But it is, you know, registered with the Library of Congress uh, as a, a film that needs to be preserved. That's a big fucking deal. That happened in 2004. Um, one of the best, you know, the, you could run down the list of uh, Oscars that it won. It's, you know, one of the big big ones aside from, obviously, uh, Best Actor. I, I think I it's also remember. one of the only, th- like, it's, it's the, it was the third Western to win Best Picture. I, 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 don't, oh, okay. I, don't, I it, don't know if one has won since. And it has to be of, if not the highest grossing Western, uh, adjusted for inflation, of course, where, where need be. But yeah, yeah I had no stuff. idea the budget was that low. That was crazy. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for the efficiency, as you put it, of Clint Eastwood, <laughs> and filming in fil- filming in Canada, which I don't know if that rubs true Western fans. Oh that, yeah, that was not, one but... little random thing I looked up just for fun when I was watching the movie because he told his kids um, he was going to be gone for two weeks. Which is just funny because, you know, like today you compare modern families to like, oh, I'm just going to leave my kids on this pig farm for a couple weeks. And because <laughs> he was going from Hodgman County, Kansas to, I think they didn't say exactly, but people guessed it like the guess was Laramie County, Wyoming. So it was uh-huh. like a 500, like a 500 mile one way trip. And it was going to take him two weeks to get there and back with all the stuff they had to do. So I thought that was kind of a. Well, for a thousand bucks split three ways. 
30 yeah for 10 grand essentially yeah right um all right yeah. well good stuff good stuff yeah you know, um, out of you too man thanks so much and uh i i forgot to plug it so you know if we're on uh if you're not following us already you know subscribe to the show you know follow us on social media at just the movies on twitter at just like the movies pod and instagram uh, i don't even know if johnny's on the zuckerberg app anymore um but uh, i am yeah <laughs> but uh john does handle most of that stuff and he he does the heavy lifting but we're we're uh you know, oh, try to make, try to make that a little better, but you know, follow us there. You know, subscribe to the show; it's free. Uh, tell people if you want to hear people, if you want to hear a couple guys just babble about westerns for an hour and a half, and then get into their technical difficulties. You know, they it's it's not as unentertaining as it sounds. But anyway, <laughs> uh, well, if they're listening, if they're listening this late in the game, they're they're big fans. Well, so. well, you got to listen this late because you got to know where we're going next because oh, you're not going to find yeah. out for yeah weeks. Um, so I. You know, it, it is Memorial Day coming up. Did you have anything specific in mind? So I thought that this might be a pick that would be obvious to uh, pin. And we're, you know, I, I don't want to hear it in terms of capitalizing on anything, but we are finally doing 1986's Top Gun. Oh, boy. <laughs> I thought I, I was thinking it might have been Rocky Four because you know Rocky ended the Cold War. Like I thought that would have been, that would been a good movie to do, like with Memorial Day coming up. But no, Top Gun. That's oh, that's gonna be that might be a really fun discussion. So we'll have it. We'll have it out probably because I'm leaving for California on Tuesday the twenty. Whatever that is. 20, is that for the celebration 24. thing? Yeah, yeah, for Star Wars celebration. So. I'll have to get that out on Monday, uh, so the twenty third, and top. I'm I'm seeing Top Gun that next Top Gun two that next day. Um, oh, so, wow! So, and dude, I'm here. Like everyone's saying, it's like fucking amazing. Yeah. It, it so looked... I, 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 we dude, say what you I want mean, about Tom Cruise. The guy, the guy can make a fucking big movie. Dude, like whatever, whatever Tom Cruise has going on, like whatever you think about his personality, <laughs> like it's not like the guy doesn't show up for work. Like oh, even his, even his movies that are kind of shitty or spectacles, like The Mummy, which was a completely unnecessary remake. Which I, I like the people I know who saw that said it was great because I, yeah. I think they were talking strictly from like, well, I don't know, I'm not gonna, but like. They they weren't looking too deep into it. They just thought it was they they wanted to be entertained, and the movie was entertaining to them. So, and by the way, my apologies to the TRB crew who listened to this. That I don't, I'm not as read into everything that goes on in the Star Wars subculture. So sorry about that. Oh, dude, please! <laughs> like it's a good, it's always a good palate cleanser to not talk about Star Wars. It makes when I do talk about Star Wars, uh, keep feeling fresh. So, um, but dude, uh. Good times as always. Uh, I'm excited to, to revisit Top Gun with you. That is a movie I, I watch more frequently than others, so um, I'll still do my uh, rewatch for the sake of uh, uh, fun. But there are some really cool things to talk about about Top Gun, especially with the new one coming out uh, 30, however many years later, 36 years later. That's so uh, nuts. Very, yeah, very, very interesting. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. But anything else for our audience before we get out? Nah, take us home, man. All right. Well, like Mike said, you know, subscribe on your preferred platform. Share us with a friend. That's how we grow. So if you have friends who like the old movies like we do and like you do, 
that smell of the old video store, looking at the back of the VHS box and saying, this is the movie I want to rent type of vibe with a big bag of microwave popcorn. We're the podcast for you. So tell your friends because honestly, talking about podcasts you like is just as entertaining or just as fun as actually listening to the podcast uh, from personal experience. So spread the word to your fellow friends who uh, like movies. Just send them a link or just say, hey, go on Spotify or go on Apple and look up just like the movies. Uh, but Mike, it has been a blast. And to everyone out there, uh, on behalf of me and Mike, be kind, rewind, relax, and we'll see you around. Deserves got nothing to do.